Well, good morning. It is good to gather together again in this way and be able to open up God's Word together. And I've had a, a good couple of weeks off, and I trust you were blessed by Russ Martin and by Chris Weir as they brought the Word of God. Russ with a, a really great uh, report in terms of the work that they're doing in social media and uh, the importance of reaching people where, they're, where they are, which is online these days, and the way in which he's doing that. And then Chris continuing in our series on Matthew and his look at the Pharisees and their uh, distortion of the law or their use of human traditions to uh, accomplish their own purposes. And uh, we're going to continue a little bit on that theme as we continue in Matthew today. And we're looking at a very interesting uh, situation, a very interesting sort of um, scenario that unfolds with Jesus and his disciples in chapter 16. Um, he had uh, had that encounter with the Pharisees that Chris talked about last week. Uh, he then feeds the 4,000 and, um, and then he's moving on to perform his ministry and, and do his ministry in other regions. And uh, so he and the disciples are traveling together and we just get a, a really interesting uh, little account here in Matthew 16 verses 5 to 12. But uh, the reality of what's taking place here, just to sort of set it up, is that um, as we've been talking about in Matthew, the, the kingdom is breaking into the world and Jesus has come to uh, bring the kingdom of God near at hand and it is an emerging kingdom, it's an imminent kingdom. And as the kingdom now is breaking into the world, it finds resistance and it finds error that it must overcome and it must correct. And um, the first error or the first resistance that the kingdom seems to encounter uh, is the self-righteous law-keeping of the Pharisees. Um, and then as the kingdom continues to expand, it runs into pantheism and the materialistic philosophies of the Greeks and the Romans. And then Gnosticism and the mystical religions that sprang up as people sort of cherry-picked uh, parts of different philosophies and different religions and put them together into sort of what was called mystery religions where you had to have the secret knowledge in order to know uh, how to be saved and how to live right with the world and with God. And so what, what we see happening and, and the reality of the kingdom coming into this world is that it runs into these barriers. It runs into these errors in human thinking. It runs into these challenges that must be overcome. And so one thing that you may have noticed uh, because of that is that the default sort of stance of the church towards anything outside of itself often comes across as sort of naturally defensive. Uh, if you were to think of the church historically as sort of a living cell with, you know, all the working parts inside and a membrane around it, if you remember your science class, um, it's not been very porous membrane. It's it's been hard to get new things or any novel ideas or anything different into the church. And that's on purpose, that's deliberate. That it should be difficult for novel ideas. It should be difficult for different ideas to enter into the church. And so we sort of get a picture of the church as being skeptical or the church of being uh, critical of any foreign ideas or any foreign thoughts. And that's certainly the way it should be. Uh, we always take a cautionary stance to these things. 
And there's a good reason for that, because Jesus tells us to be skeptical. Jesus tells us to be wary and cautious as followers and as members of his church. And so does Peter, and so does James, and so does John, and so does every other writer in every other book of the New Testament. And today's text is really going to give us some context as we consider the warning of Scripture of how we as Christians are to engage with the world around us and with new ideas that come from outside of the Bible. So here's the context, and I'll just pray before we read Matthew 16, 5 to 12, and uh, we will uh, commit this uh, teaching to God and uh, to his Holy Spirit. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Matthew that's been preserved for us. We thank you for the good news that it contains. And so, Father, we are now eagerly again as your children looking to your word to understand how you would have us live and how we need to interact as kingdom citizens with this world. And so, thank you for this little insight, this little glimpse, this little account of Jesus and the disciples and how you teach us about uh, how we follow you uh, through their example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the text that we're looking at today, as I said, is Matthew 16, 5 to 12, and it reads this way, as I said, after Jesus has finished feeding the 4,000, they're leaving the shore, they go across the lake, uh, and they are moving on with their ministry together. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, here's this amazing scene of Jesus and his disciples traveling together. They realize they didn't bring any bread. Jesus says, just beware as we go forward to be careful of the leaven or the yeast uh, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples are like, (laughs) big lovable glutes, are looking around wondering, you know, how did we forget bread again? He's had to create bread, uh, you know, miraculously for us. Uh, The last two preaching tours we did, and we've forgotten to bring bread even for ourselves, and now Jesus is scolding us. And Jesus essentially says, no, I'm I'm not talking about bread. You know that I can make us bread anytime we need bread. I'm telling you that you need to be careful in your minds, you need to be careful in your spirits, you need to be careful in your souls about what teaching you are taking in. And so, why the warning? Why the warning to the disciples specifically in this particular case? Well, the disciples and all of the people of Israel at this point are deeply ingrained in their Jewish heritage and upbringing, and so they're still easily influenced by their culture. The disciples, even though they were following Jesus, had not yet begun to fully grasp their identity in Christ, that that was where their identity came from, nor to grasp the truth of everything Jesus was saying. We're still a little bit away from Peter even recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, although that's coming next week. 
And so Jesus feels the warning is required because his disciples, his followers, seem to be unaware of the danger that they're in of the influence of other teaching, religious teaching, and also the danger of the culture they're in. And in this case, it's one and the same because Israel is a religious culture. And so they're still thinking about their stomachs rather than thinking about their souls. Well, what was the danger? What is the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about? Well, the Pharisees were the most influential group of people in Israel. They were spiritually the new holiness movement. They took the law very seriously. They were the righteous of the righteous. They defined what it meant to be righteous. If you wanted to be righteous in culture and not looked down upon by your friends, if you wanted to fit in, then you followed the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the trendsetters. They were the idea makers. Uh, they were the thought um, influencers. And so if you wanted to be accepted, then you followed what the Pharisees said for the law and for tradition for righteousness and if you didn't follow what they said then you were sort of an outsider you were an outcast you were looked on skeptically but the problem is is that the pharisees were dangerously wrong and their error was seeping into every nook and cranny of jewish life and worship and chris talked about some of that last week it was, as Jesus says, like leaven or yeast in loaves of flour. It only takes a tiny amount, but it soon spreads and it goes through the whole batch. And so the Pharisees, we'll see more later, were the embodiment of the error of their time period. They were the embodiment of the spirit of their age. But yet they drove the religious and political and cultural agenda to the point that people just accepted that what the Pharisees said was true and it was how things were. And on the surface, keep this in mind, what the Pharisees said seemed good. It's not like they were pushing a whole bunch of bad ideas that everybody said, oh, that's obviously wrong and we don't want to do that. What the Pharisees were doing with their adherence to the law and their building up of the law actually appeared good to people. So at first glance, if you looked at what the Pharisees were saying, you would say, this is a good thing. We as a culture, we as a society need to follow this. These Pharisees are on the right track. But underneath, it wasn't good. And so Jesus is warning his disciples, beware. And he's warning his followers, his church, have to heed this warning of be careful and beware. Because if we don't heed it and we absorb outside ideas and outside cultural influences very easily, then we will get into deep, deep trouble. So we must be aware of and on guard against false teaching and powerful influences that come from the spirit of our age. That's really what Jesus is saying here. In the big picture on the surface, Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, be careful. Be careful of these ideas in your Jewish culture. Be careful of these ideas in your age. Be careful of these ideas that come from the influencers of your culture because they will ultimately be like yeast or like leaven and they will infiltrate and they will influence your thoughts in ways that are not good. So let's just look at this then. This isn't just a one-time thing. This is something that applies to the church age and it applies to us. And the New Testament takes it very seriously. Um, it's not necessarily that I want to constantly be saying, hey, we need to be careful of all these ideas and, you know, we need to examine everything really critically and carefully and, you know, we need to be cautious of everything. It's not necessarily, um, you know, the most joyful thing that I teach or that I want to teach, but we can't ignore what Jesus is saying to his disciples or what he says to his followers or to the 
to the testimony of, of the New Testament. And so I just want to look at the frequency of the warning. I want to look at the strength of the warning. I want to look at um, the um, uh, particulars of the threat, and then I want to apply the warning to our lives. So first of all, just really quickly, we just look at the frequency of the warning from Jesus and from the rest of the New Testament. Matthew 7.15, we already covered this. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus is saying, watch out. He'll say later in Matthew 24, he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Even Christians in the church who are saved might possibly be deceived. Their deception is so strong. Or Acts 20, 28-29, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The warnings just go on. They're everywhere through the New Testament and the letters. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says he has to keep preaching the way he does. He says, I'm going to continue to do what I do, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even satanic things can look good. Or in Colossians 2.8, which we'll look into more later, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's philosophies, and there's elemental spirits of this age or this world that can take us captive. Then in Philippians, Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, because they got pulled away, because they got distracted by things that were non-biblical. Or 1 Timothy 1, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Wage the good warfare, holding fast holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So you can completely get sidetracked by rejecting the truth of the Bible and substituting it for other truths that come in from outside. Second Peter chapter 2 warns about false teachers that rise like false prophets did among Israel. And then Jude says the same thing. The letters of John talk about the Antichrist that will arise, false teachers. The book of Revelation, to the letters to the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation are often filled with warnings against false teaching and of the influence of culture, such as the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2.15 in their practice. So, briefly here, we just see the evidence that in the New Testament, as you go from cover to cover in the New Testament, it's filled with every kind of warning, that there is a danger around the people of God, that they will be influenced by false teachers, by false ideas, by cultural movements, and that we have to be on our guard. But how often are we? How often do we really guard what influences our thoughts, especially in this day and age? The church can take worldly ideas, Christians can take worldly ideas and spiritualize them, or not even bother to spiritualize them. Just take worldly ideas and say, hey, that sounds good. I'm going to start to follow that. And integrate them in a way that lends legitimacy and correctness to them, when in fact, underneath they are false. They appear good on the surface, 
but they will eventually undermine biblical truths. They will eventually undermine the centrality of Christ. They will undermine the sovereignty of God. They will undermine uh, the value of human uh, life in the image of God. They will undermine doctrines of our faith if we are not careful, even though what they appear on the surface might seem to bring about good consequences. And we'll talk more about them later, some specifics. And so this is what the Pharisees were doing. To bring it back to Jesus and what he was warning the disciples of, He's saying, this is something that you need to be careful of as my follower, because this is what the Pharisees are doing. They are influencing, they are permeating the thought culture of Israel. And what they are influencing and the things that they are working into the culture and into my people are not good things, and so you need to be careful. What the Pharisees were doing is they wanted a religion on their own terms. They wanted to get self-righteousness and self-justification into religion. They wanted to be justified on their own self-worth uh, and on their actions rather than justified by God. And they wanted to get materialism and gratification into the religion. They wanted to be able to have all the stuff of this world and have sanctification as well. And Chris talked about that one directly last week where they said, we'll declare these things Corbin and then therefore we don't have to help our mom and our dad in financial need because we've declared these things as dedicated to God. And so therefore we can keep all of our stuff and still appeal holy. And so the Pharisees very specifically wanted to work self-justification and self-gratification and really self-salvation into religion. And that's what they were doing. And Jesus says that's poisonous, uh, that's dangerous, that's a yeast or that's a leaven that will ultimately destroy true biblical truth. So we have these many warnings, but we also have to consider the strength of the warning, again, just briefly. When, when the Bible talks about things, there's a certain strength lended to the, to the um, language that's used. And the language used in these particular warnings about false teachers and false ideas is about the strongest language that you will find in the Bible. It's certainly the most violent. Just look back and remember the words of Jesus and his descriptions. In Matthew 7, remember, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. They're ravenous, fierce, hungry, violent wolves. Ravenous. They look innocent. They look attractive. They look good like sheep, but they are ravenous. False teachers and false teaching will ultimately destroy and devour you like a wolf destroys a flock of sheep. That imagery is very violent. Or look at Matthew 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, again, looks good, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness, or actually literally rottenness, rotten corpses. This is Jesus speaking, right? He says, this is like violent wolves tearing sheep apart. This is like whitewashed tombs full of bones and rotten flesh. Um, or Matthew 18, 6, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these followers of mine, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's just about the most extreme thing that Jesus ever says. It's really the closest glimpse that he gives us of the righteous and godly justice that is going to come to those who are evil and those who are opposed to God. To people who deliberately lead people into sin and away from salvation, Jesus says, they will eventually meet me and it would be better for them. 
they will feel better off if they had been drowned with a millstone around their neck. Like I said, this is strong language that is directly connected to this warning about false teaching and false ideas. Or we can go on to Paul, just cover a couple more. Paul calls them grievous wolves or ferocious wolves among the sheep in Acts chapter 20. The image here is of a flock of white woolly sheep with wolves snapping and biting and shedding blood among this flock of white sheep. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says that they are a strong delusion, these satanic ideas, a wicked deception sent by Satan. Again, strong language. So this warning is frequent, it is strong, it must not be ignored. We must be warned against it. So what I want to do now is just look at how this deception takes place. Jesus just says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Paul says false teachers will come. Um, But those verses don't exactly explain the shape that it takes, especially in our age and in the church age. But there are some verses that do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Colossians 2, 6 to 8 and Ephesians 4, 13 to 14 and just see where this idea of false, ide- of, of false teachers or false philosophies and the danger of them uh, is a little more elaborated on. So Colossians 2, uh, 6 to 8 says this. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not, or opposed to, according to Christ. And so, every age and every nation and every culture has its spirits, both in a literal sense of lying spirits that deceive, but it also takes the form of a spirit of the age. We often use that phrase. A trend, a mindset, a bent, a leaning, an influence that permeates everything. This is like the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus warned the disciples of. But here Paul says it's not only false teachers or false prophets, it's not only distortions of the gospel, it's not only things that are going on inside the church, but it's the culture itself, it's philosophies and deceitful manipulations of the world, these philosophies and traditions and trends of the time that are not in accord with Jesus. And this is still in the situation today. It's still applicable today. In the second century, In the first century, um, Paul was dealing with, as I said, Gnosticism and paganism and pantheonism. Uh, In the second century, the church fathers were dealing with Neoplatonism. In the Middle Ages, it was a distorted Catholicism. And then after that, it was existentialism that began to question what we can know and how we can know it. And after existentialism came fatalism and nihilism that searched for meaning and purpose apart from God and, of course, found none. And then you had Marxism that attempted to build a foundation for justice and morality on the elimination of individual identity and the substitution of political identity for individual identity and finding justice between political groups. And then we have more recently things like postmodernism in the last century that undermined the notion of objective truth and set us adrift in both truth and moral relativism. And now after postmodernism in the last 10, 15, 20 years, we have what is called critical theory and identity politics and intersectionality 
and critical theory and intersectionality are really an inevitable and dangerous blend of moral relativism, social justice in its worst form, and the replacement of individuals and individual value with tribes and tribalism. And so this idea that is outlined here in Colossians 2, 6 to 8, this is the history of the church. This is what Jesus was telling his followers. This is what the apostle Paul and what Peter and John were saying, that there are philosophies and empty deceits out there that are according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world that are not according to Christ, and they will try to take you captive. And that sounds like the kind of environment we are in today, doesn't it? The kind of environment the churches always find itself in. That's why the warnings are here. That's why we are cautious and skeptical. And then if we look on in Ephesians 4, 13 to 14, we can see a little more detail that fleshes this out even more. Ephesians 4, 13 to 14 says that we are all getting built up in the church. Pastors and apostles and teachers are, are in the church building people up until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This, this section of Ephesians is another very good description of our condition as believers in our modern problem. And Paul uses here the analogy of children which is probably not far off what Jesus was thinking when he was explaining about the bread and the leaven to his disciples. I can just picture Jesus kind of shaking his head and thinking, okay, let me try and explain this as simply as I can to you, children. Um, you're going to get it. But Paul is saying here, children are not rooted or built up. Children are not established in their knowledge and faith. Children can be tossed to and fro by waves and forces greater than themselves. And most forces are greater than themselves. Children can be tricked easily. We often say children are innocent, but when we say children are innocent, what we really mean is that they're ignorant, that they just don't know yet. And we say that's innocence, but it's really a lack of knowledge. And so... That lack of knowledge makes them vulnerable. And that's what Jesus says to the disciples. Beware of this subtle leaven or yeast that can come in. And it's what Paul says here to the disciples, to the followers of Jesus, saying, just be careful. You might be like children who can be influenced and not aware. Children are often unaware of the danger around them. And that's why we hold their hand beside a busy street. It's how we, why we explain that things might hurt them. Children trust easily and they are impressed by any appearance of skill or cleverness. It's interesting, in the King James Version, or in the Revised Version, um, this, uh, the word that's used here is by the slight of humanity, the slight of human cunning, right? So it's the trickiness, it's a sleight of hand, it's the word that's used in the Greek for when you're throwing dice. And Paul is saying that while you're playing this cultural game, while you're engaging with these ideas, just be careful because the people throwing the dice, they're tricky. And they can change the dice when you're not looking. And so just understand what Paul is saying here and what Jesus is saying to his disciples. If you are not paying attention, if you are not making an effort to grow in knowledge and discernment, then you will end up like a child in the world and possibly deceived. I remember as a six or seven-year-old, and maybe you were the same, my biggest concern as a six-year-old was the Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot. I was very captivated by this idea that there was a place in the world where ships and planes suddenly disappeared 
and were never to be seen again, and I wondered why the adults didn't do anything about it. Or Bigfoot, how did they not catch this guy? I mean, with planes and cameras and the military, something, how is Bigfoot eluding them? We can't just leave this crazy monster out in the woods to continue on. Uh, or whole families of them, or tribes of them, whatever it is. So, so you see, as a child, this this was a big thing to me. You know, the Bermuda Triangle and Bigfoot. And we can laugh about that, but you have to see what adults are reading online now, and what we adults, even Christian adults, are believing these days on the internet. And I'm not talking about crazy new religious ideas either, or even old heresies that are enjoying new popularity. Heresies that we put together put to bed 400 years ago and are still cropping up and we still have to go back and re-educate and remind people that the church has already asked all these questions, the church has already faced all of these challenges, that the Bible has already addressed these things and we've put these things to bed a long time ago. But apparently they keep coming up. I'm not even talking about those things. I'm talking about brand new ideas. I'm talking about brand new ways of thinking. I'm talking about brand new movements. Um, I'm talking about stuff we've never seen before. And yet the church and Christians at times seem to not be heeding the warning of Jesus and of the Apostle and of the New Testament, which is repeated frequently and strongly, to be very careful about what we are ingesting, about what we are bringing in, to be very careful about the bread of the Pharisees and how it is leavened, how it has yeast in it. These ideas are leavened. These ideas are spiced. They are um, seeded with false ideas and error that we have to be careful of. The recent trend is the resurgence of conspiracy theories in almost every and any area of life. And some of those conspiracy theories are even creeping into the church and into Christian discourse. So you can talk about everything from philosophical ideas to conspiracy theories to particular social movements which on the surface can appear good. Remember, this is the whole point. Even Satan appears as an angel of light. These things are not necessarily on the surface bad, but, they have, but we have to be careful as Christians that we understand that they may be seasoned, they may be seeded, they may be leavened with error. So the scripture uses extraordinary language to address this issue of being captured or shipwrecked by false teaching, by false philosophies and false ideas of our age. It's something that the New Testament speaks of often and speaks of strongly. And so it's something that we need to take seriously. So beware of these empty philosophies and the craftiness of men. Beware of false teachers and doctrines. Don't be blown to and fro by every wind. Be, be conscious of what it is that you're reading on Facebook. Get to the bottom of some of the things behind the protests that are going on. Weigh carefully what the uh, demands of justice are compared to biblical justice. Be aware of what the implications of certain social philosophies are. If we were to compare the Pharisees to today, what we would discover is act we're actually living in a very similar age. You understand that as I mentioned at the beginning, the age of the Pharisees was an age in which the Pharisees had decided that they knew where salvation came from. They knew how to be righteous in the culture and righteous before God. And if you were not righteous according to their criteria, then you were an outcast. You were unrighteous. You were unclean. 
And what we have today as a result of postmodernism, as a result of Marxism, as a result of critical theory, as a result of um, intersectionality, all of these things is we have a new sort of pharisaical society which looks and smells very similar to the society that Jesus was warning his disciples of. He says, be careful. He says, there are people out there who have decided how you will be considered righteous. And if you are not considered righteous by their terms, then you will be an outcast. You will be declared unclean. You will not have the same privileges in society that they have, at least in social society for now, maybe eventually in legal society as well. Maybe even now in some ways we could look at ways in which in legal society we don't have the same privileges that others do. And we see that in, as I mentioned, things like critical theory and intersectionality, which parts of the church are absorbing. And I don't want to just pick on them. Like I said, there's conspiracy theories. There's just crazy ideas about parenting and other things that come across Facebook. It's, it's all the things that we need to be careful that we take captive every thought about. But there seems to be a growing trend in the last 10 years ago where, and you don't need to know what critical theory is, and you don't really need to know what intersectionality is, but you can see the result of it. Critical theory and intersectionality in a 10 cent tour is basically the idea that justice is found in the equalization of social groups and that everybody is a product of their environment and of the group in which they belong or the influence of other groups on them. In other words, it's a submersion of the individual and an escalation of the tribe or of the group. And so you can imagine what some of the groups are and you see them played out every day on the internet and on the streets and in the courts of, of our country. Um, you know, whether it's black or white, whether it's uh, Hispanic, whether it's female or male or trans, gender or whether it is rich or poor, part of the 1% or part of the 99, abled or disabled, um, good looking, not good looking. I think um, I, I heard from a professor uh, that there is something like 30 some odd different distinctions now in critical theory as far as what the power groups are and how they influence each other. And just before you think that I am particularly smart, uh, just understand that uh, I'm not very smart, nor do I have any great insights on our culture, but I read people who are very smart and do have these insights on our culture. And so my thoughts on this uh, come from synthesizing and reading people like Jacob Howland and Charles Taylor and Luke Ferry and Tim Keller and Ed Stetzer and other people like that. And so I don't want you to think that I have any particular <laughs> brilliance in this area. But what I do want to do is I want to take the warning of Jesus and I want to take the warning of the Apostle Paul and I want to make sure that I apply it to my Christian life and to the shepherding of the church and the guarding of the church. And so what happens with critical theory and with intersectionality, and intersectionality is really just um, the idea that you belong to more than one of these groups and they all intersect. And so you may be gain power from or be uh, a victim of a group depending on what combination of groups that you belong to. But all of that is a very f sort of fancy philosophical thought that you don't really have to understand as much as you just need to see the reaction of it. And I'll just give you one example of, of how this works and how you've maybe seen it play out over the last 10 or 15 years. First of all, the rise in identity politics, the idea that we are not individuals, we are our gender identity or we are our race identity. We belong to an ethnic group. Um, I'm not so much concerned about Paul Graham, I'm concerned that he's a white male. Uh, North American in the middle class. Uh, I'm not so 
concerned about this particular person except the fact that they are transgender or this particular person because they are uh, cisgendered. Um, I'm, I, I'm mostly concerned about what your identity is as a group, as a tribe. And, it, and critical theory says that you have to identify with your tribe and you have to stay true to it, just like the Pharisees would say, that you have to identify with their way of doing things because if you don't do that, then you're treasonous and you are doing something immoral and you're doing something that's unjust. Uh, so for instance, again, I'll get to it now, uh, the one example of seeing this play out, and I'm sure if I give you this example, you'll see how it plays out in many other areas, maybe even in your own family or your own life, uh, was I think it was about a year ago, maybe it was two years ago, that Ellen DeGeneres, who is a well-known celebrity, uh, lesbian person, and obviously a champion of that cause, um, was seen at a football game sitting and talking and laughing with George W. Bush, who's a white, straight male, probably Christian, certainly in an American sense, he's a Christian, Republican. Um, and so when that little video clip came out, the outrage was immediate and forceful that Ellen DeGeneres was a traitor, that how could she, as a Democrat, lesbian, progressive, be friends with or consort with somebody like George W. Bush, who would be considered the enemy of that tribe? And it was very serious, quick response on her just like the Pharisees would do to somebody who, you know, broke their ceremonial law. They would be declared unclean immediately and not welcomed into the group. They'd not be able to worship or fellowship until they had done penance, until they had sought forgiveness, until they had asked for absolution, not from God, but from their fellow tribe. That's where we go to now in our culture for salvation, for acceptance. We don't go to God for our identity, we go to our tribe for our identity. And in that way, this society is very much pharisaical. Anyway, I don't want to get too deeply into that. What I want to do is just simply make you aware that this is not irrelevant. What Jesus is warning his disciples of, and what Paul is warning the early Christians of, is relevant to us today. We have to be very careful that we do not simply ingest philosophies or ways of thinking that we don't understand that there may be things that destroy our identity in Christ, that destroy the value of the human being because they're made in the image of God, and all sorts of other repercussions that come from these modern philosophies. And it's not that we don't want justice. Let me be clear. These things both seem good and in many ways are good. I don't know any Christian that would argue to say that we don't want to see justice between different groups of people in society that have power, or even between different individuals in society that have power over each other. We want justice. The question is, do we need another kind of justice other than biblical justice? Or will any justice that's apart from biblical justice ultimately lead us down dangerous paths? So that if we absorb, if we swallow the bread of critical theory or of intersectionality, and we swallow that bread whole, Will it not ultimately lead us to a problem? Or do we want to say we see the problems that critical theory wants to address, but you know what? God has already given us answers. We have those answers within the Bible. We don't need to look to other philosophies that may ultimately be deceitful or lead us astray. astray. So what is the answer to this warning then? What do we do about this? And you may be sitting there thinking, I don't read 
Karl Marx, I can't even spell intersectionality. Uh, if we are children, if we are sheep, or whatever metaphor you want to use, how are we supposed to keep track of all of this, and how do we, as Christians, know what to do about it? Well, let me be clear, there is some element of being willing to learn and to understand. The answer is not to just completely disengage. The answer is, well, if books are dangerous, I'm not going to read books. If ideas are dangerous, I'm not going to you know, interact with ideas in my culture. Um, some Christians have thought that in the past, but that's not the answer the Bible would give. The Bible says that we are to mature, that we are to grow up, that we are to be rooted and to be wise, and that we do that in community. As a church, just remember that I preach the Bible is by your bedside. We gather in small groups. Christians write books. They post blogs. There's podcasts. There's community in which we're able to be built up to grow roots and get established to mature. And so part of the answer to this warning is, don't be a sheep that's apart from the flock. Don't be a Christian who is adrift apart from the supports of the apostles and the teachers and the workers and the preachers and the small group leaders and your community and the body of Christ which is there to build you up. Be built up in the body of Christ. And in addition to that, there's an even more encouraging reality that we don't have to know every single lie of the enemy. We don't have to read every single book on critical theory. We don't have to listen to every podcast on identity politics or intersectionality. We don't need to be experts in deception. Romans 16, 19 says, Be wise in what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, we don't have to be experts in all of these different things. What we need to be is experts in Jesus and in his word and in his truth and in his grace. Experts in the justice of the love of God. Experts not in identity politics, but experts in our identity in Christ. And as we mature in that and as we gain knowledge, as we love the sheep, we will not be deceived. We will recognize the wolves. We'll be able to stand against the current of the age. We'll be able to stand and swim upstream against the river that's trying to take us down. The ballast in our boat will keep us upright in the winds that are blowing. So do not give up feeding at the table of the Lord. Don't give up. Don't, don't give the culture 98% of your time and give God and his word 2% of your time. Don't give Facebook 90% of your time and the church 10% of your time. Drink at the fountain. Eat at the table. Learn and grow in the word of God and among God's people so that you will be aware of and not taken off guard by the leaven of society. Don't simply get sucked into reading every conspiracy theory and every website that postulates some new crazy idea. The reason that they're new and crazy and that they're not accepted by the church historically is because they've already been determined as wrong. When you read these websites and read these posts, you have to understand for 2,000 years the church has been dealing with this error. There's the church has not been waiting for somebody to come up with a new idea for 2,000 years and suddenly, you know, Mr. Blogger has suddenly discovered something that nobody's ever thought of before. All of these conspiracy theories, all of these novel ideas, all of these heresies, and all of these supposedly new doctrines of Christianity and of faith are not new. They're all old and they've all been dealt with. So don't give them your attention. Look to the truth of God's word. Saturate your life with the word of God. Go to God in prayer. Spend your time in what you know to be true. There are new Pharisees in town, and they want you to play by their rules, but they offer nothing except condemnation and judgment for breaking their law. Jesus is the bread, he reminds his disciples, way back in our text today in Matthew. Jesus says, why are you worried about bread? Don't you remember how I fed you miraculously twice now? I will provide the bread 
you exasperating, lovable dummies. I am the bread of life. I can supply what you need. Don't eat the Pharisees' bread. It's dangerous. Come and eat the bread of life that I supply. And Jesus could say the same thing to us today. Don't go eating at the table of Facebook and Twitter. Don't go eating at the table of the newspapers. Don't go to the crazy conspiracy websites. Stop eating the bread of the Pharisees. It will only lead you astray. I am the bread of life. I am here. Come and eat at my table. Let's pray. Father God, this is a very pervasive teaching in the New Testament, and Jesus kind of got the ball rolling for us here today with his admonition to the disciples. And I can just imagine him shaking his head, (laughs) face in hand, and just thinking, how long am I going to have to explain this to these guys? And Father, we're no better. We can identify with these disciples. We get sucked into every new and novel idea. We find something that sounds interesting and it captures our attention. And and rather than taking that thought captive, we run with it and we let it carry us who knows where. And so Father, as a church, as a people, make us wise, make us aware of this warning and the strength of this warning, that we have to be very careful what society is feeding us. We have to be very careful of every new and novel idea that comes from outside of scripture. Not because it's necessarily bad, but because it's not rooted in the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love that you've given us and the truth that you've given us in your word. Everything that we have is in your word. We don't need to invent new philosophies in order to find salvation. We have salvation in you. Father God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.